0: Well, the time now is five o'clock, time for discovering music. And this week, Charles Hazelwood is with the BBC Concert Orchestra for a profile of the French horn in the music of the early romantics. The programme features works by Robert Schumann, Felix Mendelssohn and karl Maria von Weber, beginning with a complete performance of Weber's overture to his opera, Oberon. The BBC Concert Orchestra leader Charles Mutter and I performing the overture to karl Maria von Weber's opera Oberon, composed in 1826, and premiered at Covent Garden in London just a couple of months before Weber's untimely death from consumption. Now, Weber, ladies and gentlemen, was one of the first great romantic composers and certainly probably the first great romantic orchestrator. He effectively created a new template for German musical imagination in common with the Romantic literary movement through his depiction of the forest, the woodland setting, which, of course, reached its zenith in the work of Richard Wagner. Now, German romantics define themselves through the forest. Just think of the Brothers Grimm, who gave all those ancient woodland folktales new life, from Little Red Riding Hood to Hansel and Gretel, The forest is a place of deep magic, of fecundity, but also of danger. This was an age when nature was all. Just think of all those romantic poets right across Europe seeking nature in the raw. Now Oberon, the opera, sets a poem by the British writer James Robinson Planchet, which is based itself on a 13th century chanson de geste. And it's essentially the same story origin, which is the starting point for Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. It's a woodland story. The king and queen of the fairies, respectively Oberon and Titania, have quarreled over which is more constant, man or woman. Well, Oberon, of course, sets out to prove that it is man who is constant. And so he designs a rather unlikely and difficult to bring about love match between two characters living in different parts of the world. But he issues the man with a magic horn, Oberon's own personal magic horn, to be played at any point in order to summon aid. What you get in the first four hushed bars is the call of the horn, the veiled response of the strings, a second call from the horn, and a second response, creating immediately, I think, a sense of vast space The strings could be in a clearing, but the horn somehow is everywhere. So, altogether, horn response, horn response, those first four bars make the first theme of the piece. Incredibly soft notes from the horn. It can play incredibly softly. Perfect piece of pictorial orchestration there. Flutes and clarinets just etching in the sound of gossamer fairy wings. But most importantly, the magic tones of the horn. Why should it be that the horn should play such a key role in Weber's soundscape and indeed that of his romantic contemporaries? Why is the horn the romantic instrument par excellence? That's essentially what I want to explore in this program. And to help me do that, would you please welcome on stage now the principal horn of the BBC Concert Orchestra, Mr Stephen Bell. (laughs) Stephen, perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about the development of the instrument in this period that we're talking about. The
1: particular period of time we are in 1820s, the instrument would have looked a little like this, the natural horn, no valves whatsoever, just a fixed length of tubing for which the player was able to play, as the word natural suggests, all the open natural harmonics in that particular key. This actual instrument is, in fact, a replica of uh, a French instrument by the maker Rao, who died in the early 1820s, so it's very much of the the period we're discussing now.
0: And I know that there are various crooks. I can see some on the table there, which are these uh, pieces of kind of coiled... Metal piping, aren't they? And you've got a different one for each key.
1: That's how the system worked, that you had different lengths of uh, crooks and couplers to add to the basic length of the instrument. And it is therefore possible to play the open notes of the harmonic series, the bugle calls, if you like. The length of the tubing determined which particular key you were in
0: you'll be talking about the harmonic series it would probably be helpful for all of us if you just showed us one harmonic series
1: sure i'm I'm with this instrument pitched in e at the moment for the piece we're going to be coming to the Mendelssohn. so just to show maybe harmonics 2 to 12 uh, in the harmonic series for this key You'll notice, of course, that that penultimate note, the written F, if we were in C major, is the one that is out of tune. And this is where the whole issue of... of playing the natural horn with the hand in the bell rather than the old fashioned corda a style with the, the, the hand out of the bell and the more rustic, rough sound. Uh, the whole idea of playing the natural horn with the, with the hand inside the bell, the right hand in the bell, is to temper those notes into tune. It also gives the instrument a much more lyrical quality and enables the player to play actually some of the notes that you wouldn't normally be able to play in the harmonic series. If I just demonstrate the sort of top five of those notes again, but by using the hand in the bell just to temper that written F, uh, just to bring it down into tune. It's interesting, isn't it?
0: Because um, often today, when people see a direction in a score for the horn to be stopped, it's a very different effect altogether.
1: By putting the hand further into the bell and closing the sound off, you do get that much more brassy, cuivre kind of sound.
0: One of the incredible things about the instrument, of course, is that you have to achieve every pitch purely by your lips.
1: Yes, there's no valves on this at all. So obviously each variation in pitch is made by the different tension in the lip and the air pressure. And that's one of the reasons, actually, just as a small aside, why the horn is perhaps considered to be uh, a difficult instrument to master. Because as you get higher up in that harmonic series, of course, the notes actually are very close together. So you're kind of picking ones off the top of very uh, small spacing between the shelves, if you like.
0: Stephen, did Weber's writing for the horn feel like something new, like a big step forward from what he In some ways he did.
1: He, he maybe featured the horn more than some of his contemporaries. Uh, perhaps most of his orchestral writing is what we would consider to be the sort of norm for classical orchestras in that it tended to stick to the notes of the open harmonic series. Um, it's, It has to be said that just a few years earlier, in 1815, he actually wrote a concertino for the horn, which was an extraordinary, technically very difficult work, lots of very fast passages, some extremely high writing, and one of the first uses of multiphonics, where you play one note while you sing another one into the instrument and magically a third one appears. So he wasn't frightened of actually pushing the boundaries.
0: A classic piece of writing for the horn is the nocturne from the incidental music for Mendelssohn's Midsummer Night's Dream. Now, what are the implications of playing that on a natural horn rather than a modern instrument?
1: it's it's perfectly possible to play the the, the nocturne on on the the natural horn. I don't purport to be a world authority on playing the natural horn, I have to say. Um, Modern inventions, I'm sure, the whole business of valves, which is something we'll come on to uh, later in the programme when we come to talk about Schumann. There were valves, of course, around at this time. I think the earliest record of that is around 1816, 1817. But I think then the valves were meant to put the instrument into a certain key in much the same way that changing the crook was to put an instrument in a certain key, rather than actually use them for chromatic writing. I think there was a certain element of mistrust, perhaps, not only amongst players, but also composers of the time. They harked back to the wonderful sound of the natural horn. And even Brahms, much later, in 1865, when he writes his horn trio for horn, violin, and piano, he actually writes valdhorn, or hunting horn. And and if we're talking sort of 40 years hence from where we are now, um, you can see the kind of historical context that it comes into.
0: So, the nocturne, specifically night music, and let me just put it in the context of the the plot of the play as a whole. It occurs at the end of Act 3. You remember there's been a disaster because Puck has gone about with his love potion. He's put it into the eyes of the four lovers, but unfortunately they've awoken and fallen in love with precisely the wrong people. It's a complete mess. Oberon is furious, and Puck is enjoined, through the course of this long night, to use his potion once again to make all well. And there are those magical words he speaks just before the nocturne sounds. Jack shall have Jill, Nought shall go ill, the man shall have his mare again, and all shall be well." The key thing about this music is that it's a nocturne, night music, dream music, as Swinburne summed up so beautifully, now all strange hours and strange desires are over, dreams and desires, and somber songs and sweet, the solemn slope of mighty limbs asleep. And somehow the romantic horn is uniquely capable of evoking night. And through the healing power of sleep here, it acts a bit like soul food. Just listen to how the diffused horn sound, the veiled horn sound, cloaked in the accompaniment of bassoons, is pure velvet. (laughs) So the horn brings on the comforting power of rest, I suppose you could say, suggesting the intangible healing quality of slumber. There's something we can't grasp. Again, a bit like the Oberon overture opening. This is romanticism. The horn is always used for the magical distancing effect. Well, medicine then deals with the human response to this. Excitement, yes. Still anxiety, though and even of yearning. Of course the healing works, the violins rise, untroubled, transcendent. There's a piece of perfect illustrative writing that I can't resist pointing out to you right now. The stage direction at this point says The Bower opens again. It is to see Titania and Bottom with the Elves. And what you get is delicate flutes over a misty pedal. horn reappears, one final thread of recall. We'll perform now the nocturne from the incidental music of Mendelssohn's To Midsummer Night's Dream, our horn soloist Stephen Bell. Stephen Bell was the soloist in our performance of The Nocturne, from Mendelssohn's Incidental Music to A Midsummer Night's Dream. And what I think we've, we've heard and seen so clearly thus far is the role of the romantic horn in evoking the woodland and the velvety, veiled, magic qualities that it brings. Now, Steve, can we talk about the really early history of the horn, pre this period entirely?
1: As the name suggests, uh, the original instruments were made from horn. They were signalling instruments and uh, a length of animal horn or if you were by the sea, a con shell um, and hopefully somebody who also had one that you could signal to and receive messages back from. That's the real sort of early history that it is a signalling instrument as such, a method of communication.
0: Now, you talk about signalling. How did that characterise itself in, you know, Baroque music, for instance?
1: We got to the stage where the corps de chasse, the trompe de chasse, the great French tradition in, in outdoor, if you've ever heard these instruments played, I have to say there are still annual competitions for for uh, French hunting horn playing, and it, it's quite an extraordinary sound. And, and the massed ranks of a, of a, a hunting horn band, is uh, it's very rustic, it's quite rough, it's not quite as refined as the... Mendelssohn indoor version of the instrument that you've just had
0: and of course you talk about la chasse and also these signals I suppose it's a very simple thing isn't it if you've got a bunch of hunters spread out through a vast swathe of forest It's a very useful way of one working out where the others are
1: Absolutely and of course the the instrument that I demonstrated earlier the natural horn Coiled so that it can be slung over your shoulder while you're riding horseback because if you unraveled it It's sort of 12 foot long and would be a bit unwieldy and that's why the instrument is the shape that it is now
0: so these French Baroque bands of horn players, how similar was that instrument to the Valtorn, the German Valtorn that you mentioned earlier?
1: I suspect the bore the was maybe slightly smaller. It's, it's a more direct, more penetrating, more carrying sound, uh, whereas the, the instrument I demonstrated earlier is only one of a type that was around at the time. Uh, the Viennese had a slightly different one. There was also the Bohemian horn, which was a larger bore and actually a little more unwieldy. Uh, the French, I think, is the more favoured natural horn for modern players to play on now.
0: Now, of course, the nocturne that we've just been playing from Mendelssohn's Midsummer Night's Dream, that's for just two horns. What we're going to explore now is another great piece of Weber's, uh, Der Freischutz. And, of course, there are four horns here. What's the great advantage? Why did composers like Weber decide to use four rather than two?
1: Two real reasons. One is that he could have a pair of horns in one key and another pair of horns in another key. Therefore, you could fill out more of the harmonic language within the four parts rather than sticking to what I was demonstrating earlier with the open harmonics. And it's back to this whole thing of sonority. the the romantic composers being able to fill out and if you take that to its nth degree you come to the late romantics and Bruckner where he doubles it up and uses eight horns and and we go to a whole new level
0: It does seem to me that it's also about camaraderie maybe again that stretches back to you know the hunting origins of the instrument there are four of you here, you're like a pack, you're a team Um, and uh, just listen to the glorious noise they make ladies and gentlemen, this is the Huntsman's Chorus from Der Freischutz by Weber (laughs) Stephen Bell, Duncan Fuller, Kira Doherty, and Ellie Reed, the four horns in that splendiferous uh, rendition of the Huntsman's Chorus from Weber's Der Freischutz. So again, we get the sense uh, that the horn, historically, is synonymous with signals, a sense of the hunt, calling, and of course, the forest. Now, Der Freischutz was a very important piece of German art. Written in 1821, it ended once and for all the supremacy of Italian opera, in particular the operas of Rossini. Weber turned directly and powerfully to the soul of the German people, awakening their richest reverberations. And this is a piece immediately relevant to the German people, it was at the time anyway, and popular culture at the time in general. So the romantic style here, as in Oberon, is all about a subjective atmosphere marked by changing moods. And again, Freischutz is all about the forest, its sunny and its dark sides. Straight away, in the opening adagio of the overture, you get three very contrasted moods. You hear nature in the roar. Then, entirely unconnected, a new rocking bed of harmony and diffused strings over which the four horns in pairs call to one another across a vast distance of space, radiant and optimistic. Then in the final part of this adagio, another side to the forest, dark brooding, distorted intervals, a cello theme on the dank forest floor, struggling for the light. We're going to play now the adagio from the overture to De Freischutz, the sharp shooter by Weber, and uh, In a break with convention, we still have our horn quartet here at the front of the stage, which will create, I think, the most wonderful sense, the brightness and the directness of the sound, the string bed which accompanies it, rich but diffused. the opening adagio from Weber's Der Freischutz Overture. The use of horns in the orchestra in romantic repertoire to suggest space and even the outdoors is very telling. There are many examples, not least from later on in the century, the fourth movement of Brahms's first symphony, in which, quite simply, he evokes an, a horn call right across an alpine valley. So that tiny segment of Brahms, the last movement of his first symphony there, absolutely evokes what we're all about in this program. The Alpine Valley, across which these two horns are calling, ultimately it evokes nature. Well, we get nature in abundance in what we're going to hear next, and a strong sense of heroism Music from Siegfried's Great Rhineland Journey from Goethe Demmerung, the fourth opera of Wagner's Great Ring Cycle. Music which absolutely summons up all three elements to the early romantic horn that we've been exploring a sense of the vastness of the forest, signalling and in particular that kind of evocation of space. The soloist was Stephen Bell. The horn is a notoriously difficult instrument to play. But the 19th century, in other words, the Romantic period, found innovations to the instrument which helped to open up possibilities for the role it could play both as a solo instrument, a chamber instrument, and in the orchestra through the invention of a system of valves. Some Romantic composers were attracted by this possibility, all the possibilities this innovation afforded, Others less so, as Stephen Bell said earlier. Brahms, for instance, liked the open sound of the natural harmonics and the timbre of the hand-stopped horn. Schumann, on the other hand, rose to the challenge of writing for the valve horn and created some early masterpieces for it, including his Concertstück, which we explore now. And to explore it with us, would you please welcome a quartet of horns, Michael Thompson, Mark Johnson, Tom Rumsby and David Wythe. Michael, my first question to you really is, uh, how different is the horn you're playing on today from that very presumably primitive valve horn for which Schumann wrote the concept? Um
2: Well, it's, it's fairly substantially different. Um, it's got more tubing. The theory of this is it gives us more options. Unfortunately, it doesn't particularly make it any easier. We, we have, most of us these days, we're playing, um, playing parts that go very high. We use instruments which are pitched in F, B-flat, and even high F, F-alto. The slight problem with this is uh, best summed up by the great German horn player, Hermann Baumann, who said that if you do crack a note, we call it a cracked note if you, if you, if you miss one, uh, he said on the, on the old F-horn, a cracked note is charming. On the, on the B-flat horn, it's unfortunate. <laughs> on the F-alto, descant horn, it's a catastrophe. <laughs>
0: Well, no doubt we're going to be talking some more about just how difficult this piece, Schumann's Konzertstück, is. It does bring together all the elements we've been exploring so far. The hunt, the forest evocation of space, and of course, signaling. Now, we've had the horn, as I said earlier on, as a harbinger of peace, of well-being, the healer, perhaps, in the context of Mendelssohn's Nocturne. But here it is, as a purveyor of rude health, Interestingly, Schumann wrote his Konzertstück in 1849, which he described later as being his most productive year. He suffered terribly with ill health, but there's something about the year 1849 which ensured he had a really good run. He began 30 compositions that year, and in addition to the Konzertstück, he also completed his great Manfred Symphony. Now, what do you get right at the start? A two-chord greeting from the orchestra, and then a signal-like introductory motif from the horn quartet, which immediately then gets taken up by the orchestra. Call, response, remember? And then finally, in bar six, the first proper F major chord, which is the key of the piece. A classical era work would probably have begun at this sixth bar. So, somewhat radically, there's no lengthy orchestral exposition or introduction. The soloists are straight in, It's a bit like we joined a hunt in full flight. To what extent has this piece enriched or extended the horn repertory in the years that have followed it? I believe that that, um,
2: at the very first performance, um, the the gentleman playing first horn decided not to use one of these newfangled valved horns and actually resorted to his natural horn. And actually the piece, it lay kind of dormant for a little while. I think because horn players just looked at it and thought, You must be joking. Um, And it really wasn't until the 20th century that horn players started tackling it. It's a little bit of an Everest, I mean, in terms of um, altitude. And uh, it's one of those things, of course, that once one person has got to the summit, then um, other people follow. When did you first play it? Oh, um, well, I I, I suppose probably 25 years ago or something. But certainly, through most of my younger years, I, I steered well clear of it. I um, wasn't too sure at all.
0: Right, well, exactly the point we've arrived, we get this broad and festive theme, which has kind of been suggested by the upward thrust of that introduction we just played. And What interestingly you get is the first horn soloist alone, then he's joined by the second horn as well, and then you get horn one and four playing together, but in a kind of contrary motion. So again... Already evoking a tremendous sense of space. And also, listen to the way that the first horn and then the others that join him have a little forte piano. That's a kind of relatively hard hit or attack on the note, which immediately then retreats. So you get something straight between the eyes, which instantly is diffused. It's a quality, a very particular horn quality. <laughs> up here immediately is that triplet idea that we heard in the very opening horn signal, and it's bounced from player to player. There's a healthy sense of competition. I don't know if you'd agree with that, Mike, a kind of camaraderie, but also, no, I can play higher, and I can play higher. But of course, the horn can sing as well as shout. And when the cantabile, the singing section, which follows this healthy, competitive tripletizing, it's ushered in by another of those forte pianos. It's like Schumann can turn his mood on a sixpence. <laughs> Mike, one of the reasons, presumably, why this piece is so incredibly difficult is that there's virtually no rest. This is true. It's it's very um, demanding
2: physically. Um, One of the the slightly annoying things about being a horn player is that we we are actually working with relatively small muscles um, around the uh, the lips. And uh, they they do tire fairly quickly, so we have to to take this into account. We have to kind of, to some extent, think like a musician, but also a little bit like like an athlete.
0: Here's an example now of brilliant lyrical design. Schumann spreads his ideas across the four corners of the orchestra. Call and response, echoes. It's interesting to note that Schumann had, at this time, been studying baroque concerti grossi. In particular, J.S. Bach's Four Harpsichord Concerto, which, incidentally, Bach himself had borrowed or derived from Vivaldi. So, to some extent, this Concertstück is a concerto grosso for the Romantic age, where the solo instruments are from within the orchestral family. In other words, there's not a piano or a harp here. In calling it Konzertstück, literally concert piece, again perhaps the influence of Weber, who wrote a great one for piano and orchestra, is felt here, the horns are hunting in pairs now, and then they do some thundering call and response with the orchestra, just as a Baroque concerto grosso master might do. Mike, there's a huge compass, huge range on display in that tripleting, from you relatively high to the fourth horn, incredibly low. Massive compass to the instrument. Indeed. Um, Actually, we horn
2: players tend to divide up our duties somewhat. Um, uh, Although all horn players, uh, with any self-respect, would would be able to play the entire compass of the instrument, uh, we do tend to specialise a little. So horn players tend to think of themselves either as as, um, fairly good in the high register or... Very good in the low register. I leave the low
0: notes to the guys who do it really well. Well, presumably, the facial muscles are slightly different to create a low sound from well, a very high one.
2: Yes, it, it is. Um, it, as you say, it's a very wide range. I mean, it's, um, it's four octaves or something. Um, so um, it's, it's, it's quite a range to, to master.
0: And of course, another key thing to remember about the displacement of parts between the four of you soloists is that you're not necessarily always the one on top, so to speak. Very often, there's interesting thematic material rising up from the second or third player, for instance. Just as is the case here, in true sense of camaraderie or companionship, the second and then the third horn has the solo feature, the others accompany him. Shortly after this, there's a passage of quite fiendishly high terror I would imagine. I'm not a horn player, but uh, I, I can discern it. that uh, There are plenty of high Fs in this piece. At this point, I'm not going to ask you to play it now, you actually go to a high A. I, I personally
2: take comfort in, in a couple of things that, that Schumann knew what he was doing. This is all doubled at the octave. The violins are playing, the flutes are playing. I'd like to think that Schumann wrote something that was probably not really feasible, but he thought, well, I'll put it in and we'll, we'll see what happens. And, of course, the, 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 the way things always go is... Um, uh, that people then decided it is very feasible. So now we're kind of on a bound to, to play these high notes. So, um, yes, as you say, I think the, the word you used was um, fear. That's a pretty good word.
0: <laughs> the middle movement, the slow movement, follows on from the first without a break. A sense of the unbroken line was central to so much romantic thought. The narrative must, after all, never be interrupted, even as it completely changes tack. There's definitely some homage to Mendelssohn in this, something that he cared very deeply about as well. No pauses for potential applause. Also, this middle movement is a romance. It opens featuring oboe, violas and cellos, providing fertile thematic space for the solo horns to develop. And what a perfect colour match, lower strings to horns, underlining the fact that the horn is somehow friend to all other instruments. It can blend with the woodwinds, it often does, also the brass, but certainly it blends well with the heat of the violas and cellos. And so the two horn soloists continue to ruminate, now in canon. And notice how only the second horn is doubled with a trombone, giving it an extra deep luminescence. It's interesting to remember that composers of the next generation after Schumann generally held that his orchestration left something to be desired, especially in passages like this. Hard for us today to imagine. These ruminations feel, I don't know if you share this, they feel almost improvisatory. Remember, another romantic ideal, in a way, was this sense of webs of spontaneous thought. And in the middle of this movement, there is exactly that, an almost endless chromatic melody. There's another wonderful kind of seamless join going into the third and final movement, a magic bridge which dispels this dream world. And the call you get, which lures us back into the daylight, doesn't come in this instance from magic horn, but rather from magic trumpets. And surely, we're back to the hunt. Again, the theme there, the beginning of that fast music, is shared between the tutti orchestra and the soloists. Mike, to what extent is that slow movement we've just been exploring a, a relief, technically, from the extraordinary vicissitudes of the two outer ones?
2: Um, y- yes, it is. It is something of a, um, a respite. Um, it's also a, a beautiful opportunity to explore the, the lyrical side of, of the horns' character. Um, it, it does obviously have this at least dual personality, which, uh, which Steve demonstrated so magnificently in the first half um, with the, the Siegfried horn call, uh, which is you know, one of the most virtuosic and toughest pieces that we have to play. But for me, even more significant, the three notes that opened the whole concert, those three notes in the middle register um, of Oberon, which sound, especially in the hands of someone like Stephen Bell, um, so easy. Trust me, they're not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, have a listen now to these quicksilver mercurial rises and falls. They're kind of fast magic swells. And also, you get the sense of unfurling through the four-horned soloists. An unfurling line signals again, calling across the firmament. Before we go on, let me just play you once again that endless chromatic melody from the slow movement. There's a reason for it. So, have a listen to this lovely, subtle thematic transformation. Exactly that material, but just gently manipulated, just at the heart of the last movement. Again, this thread of recall. Well, as I hope we've now seen, all the essential ingredients or hallmarks of the Romantic horn combine here in Schumann's Konzerstück, evocation of distance, the hunt, the suggestion of magic, of the night. Ultimately, I suppose, I hope we've proved that the horn is central to the Romantic imagination and the Romantic vision. Are there any questions? Particularly with the quartet of horns, it's like, to me in the front row here, it's a very
2: enveloping sound. Now I notice that the horns are actually facing backwards. This is if I'm hearing the sound of the acoustics rather than direct. Are the horns directional? In other words, if they were facing us, would we hear a completely different sound? Let's see. Yes. <laughs> can I can I share a little um, anecdote? Um, I was I was once present at a, a a masterclass that a very distinguished horn player was giving in Perth, Australia, and. Um, in the course of the masterclass, he, he was talking to the audience and he said, you know, this, this business about the, the different sound that the audience hear and what it would sound like um, just behind the bell. And he said, you know, sometimes I invite the whole audience to come and stand behind me while I play. And a young boy in the front row put his hand up and said, uh, excuse me, couldn't you just turn around? <laughs>
1: Another question. I hope this is relevant. When I was much younger, my mother worked for a lady who had a son who played the French horn. Now, am I imagining this with only one arm? Is that possible?
2: (laughs) I'm sure sure it is possible. I'm not quite sure how you'd manage it. You probably have to have some kind of sling. I have seen people who've who've had... um, maybe some, some uh, fingers missing or something like that who've played horns the other way round. So you have a horn made um, that way round, which is um, quite expensive, a custom job. But um, anything's possible. Yes, I'm so sure I you're right. I was
1: imagining it.
2: I've often wondered why we use French words to describe the corps anglais, seeing as it sounds as though it comes from England. Conversely, why do we use English words to describe a French horn? What is it that's French about it? We, I think... To be honest, the term French horn is a bit of a misnomer. It's only in English-speaking countries that uh, we, we use the term French horn. Um, it, the French themselves simply call it le corps, the horn. Uh, the Germans call it uh, das Horn. Um, so it's only us and the Americans. Um, the Americans, of course, confuse things even more because anything you blow, they call a horn. Um, so um, it's, it's a bit of a misnomer, probably because the first horns that we Um, saw in this country came across the channel from France. And I believe, um, Charles, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the theory is that the core anglais is actually a a misspelling and it actually means anglais as in angled horn, not English horn.
0: Which is a shame, really, because wouldn't it be lovely if we could say, it was ours, that instrument. (laughs) Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for your excellent questions and for your warmth and support throughout. Together with this quartet of horns, Michael Thompson, Mark Johnson, Tom Rumsby... David Wythe, the BBC Concert Orchestra leader Charles Mutter. We will now give a performance of Schumann's Konzertstück.